audio conversation with Joe Montaldo, recorded Saturday, June 4th, 2011. I'm going to keep the bio of Joe pretty short here because uh, he talks fast and uh, he's sure to share a lot during this long interview. This interview is broken up into two parts, and the reason I had to do that was because it would be like a three-hour download, and uh, and I just can't create files that big and then post them uh, in order to keep the sound quality high enough. Uh, but let me tell you this about Joe, and I'm going to read this pretty much right from his uh, bio, which is on his website. Joe Montaldo is co-founder and international director and spokesperson for ICAR, that is I-C-A-R, and that is an acronym for the International Community for Alien Research. He is also a host of a radio program called UFO Undercover, and this is an internet talk show that allows the host and the guest to interact and answer questions mostly on the UFO abduction phenomena, and this goes right along with ICAR's main focus, which is the alien abductions and the alien agenda. ICAR members and Joe have investigated over 5,000 cases of alien contact and abductions. Uh, That's a lot on one guy's plate. Um, You know, this guy Joe, we have a lot in common. We both talk fast, and we're actually, we're both 48 years old, which is interesting. Now that, that shows up in the conversation. But um, Joe has a way of talking. He's very forthright. He's very, very intense. And he does not shy away from some pretty bold claims. And uh, I kind of jump in there, which is, which is, which is kind of hard for me. There's a side of me that wants to be polite and just listen, but I have to jump in a bunch and say, you know, whoa, 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 back up, back up, Joe. Um, you know, what do you mean by that? And then he'll go ahead and give a definition to something, and then he'll get kind of on a roll, and uh, and then I have to do it again. I'm like, whoa, 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 Joe, back up. You know, what did you mean by that? And uh, and I wish I had done it a little bit more, but at the same time, I think it um, uh, it felt like I was a good balance for him to try to get some ideas across because I am quite concerned that he's so intense and he's so forthright that people will listen to his radio program and and might even get turned off because the stuff he is sharing to the uninitiated and to the people who aren't immersed in this topic uh, might come across as is pretty outrageous, even though, and I'll add that even though I've read a bunch of material, I've talked to plenty of people, I can kind of tap into most of what he says, and then there are some things he says where I'm just like, whoa, 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 Joe, back up. So, that said, I I do like the guy a ton, super gregarious, and uh, and boy, this guy is not shy about speaking his mind. This full interview is almost three hours, and part one here is about an hour and a half. Uh, I, this, I thought this was. I thought there was a lot of great information in this interview, and I really hope you don't get turned off by uh, by the intensity of the conversation. I encourage you to do your best and stick it out. And and there's a lot of rewards in this, in the sense that boy, man, I, he shares stuff that I've never heard anywhere. And you know, I'm skeptical at the same time. You know, he claims, and I trust him. He claims this data comes from a lot of his research. Uh, there's so many elusive factors that can confuse things and tie things up in knots. So, uh, given his many years of research, uh, I gotta just, you know, roll with it and then, and see if I can keep up with him. And, uh, I encourage you to do the same. Uh, typical of both of our styles, I think. There's no, uh, introduction. He picks up the phone and we just roll right into it. Please enjoy. 
Hey, I just was listening just as a prep for this. I was listening to you and uh, uh, Treese. Is Treese Sheridan? Oh, last night? Yeah, I was in hyper mood last night, too. Yeah. Man. Yeah. yeah. And, I, I um, barely get that talkative. <laughs> yeah, she's she's good. I like her. I like her a lot. She's very she's dry. Good. She's very organized. She's very straightforward. Yeah, she's definitely got her uh, stuff together, to say the least. Yeah, I met her a few times over the years at, at uh, conferences. And, yeah, um, she's a... She's just a very professional host. She really, really does have her stuff together. And uh, it's just a good interview. And we've been knowing each other a long time, so she kind of knows where to go and where not to go. But anytime you're ready, I'm just, I was just messing around with a, uh, with a server. Okay, yeah, so here, I'm recording right now. It just My recorder turns on automatically. Okay. And, um, you know, as long as you want to go, and if you feel you need to just call it, and, you know, we can be done. And, you know, sometimes conversations have a life of their own, and, and we'll just mm, let those... And then uh, if you need a break at any time, I edit this stuff. So, you know, if you need to get up and leave and blow your nose or, or um, great. So, uh, um, you know, in the editing afterwards makes a lot of this easy in case we get off topic or mumble or something like that. I can just snip that stuff out. And <laughs> uh, they, uh, I wish we had time to edit. I really do. We just don't anymore. It's, it's it, With two of the shows we got, it's almost a virtual impossibility. I try to get the host to do it, you know, to do their own editing. Uh, but mm, some of them will do it. Some of them they don't want to mess with it. I don't know if it's if they're scared of it or if they just don't have the time to do it. And know? and I I think it's an important part of the whole thing for me especially because I do mumble a little bit and then uh, you know like I don't have a weekly schedule you know like so I'm not cranking this stuff out. I just do it whenever I feel like doing it. Yeah. And um so you know maybe I'll do two a month. It's worth it for me to edit it because uh, it's, I owe the person listening the best clarity I can come up with because I, I feel like I'm trying to express myself in some of this too. Well, it's 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 because it's, it's tough, man. When you when you get into it like this, it's it's tough, you know. If you're gonna, you, if you want it to sound right and you want to do the right interview, it's always going to be a little bit harder to, uh, well, to make it sound like the way you want it to sound. And then what I'll do at the end is do you know a, a proper introduction, and I'll just I'll just record that at the very end. So you know, in essence, I'll be psychic, yeah. and I but I can uh, I can you know uh, give you a proper introduction at the beginning. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Actually, that's kind of a nice way of doing. It. I wish I could do that a lot of times because you never know how some of these interviews are going to turn out once you get uh, once you get started on them. You know, you just don't know where they're going to go. Okay, let's just we can just roll in and start, and then if if anything comes up. Um, you know, feel free to just, you know, bring it up. And then uh, the one thing I do want to keep kind of reined in a little bit is um, uh, there's a lot of good information you've already shared out there on the, uh, including just the interview you, you did yesterday with, with Trees. And um, that would be, you know, a lot of the depth of the uh, of the blood type. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of stuff we didn't touch on either, like the ADHD and things like that. But um, there's a lot of diseases that are associated with particular blood types that, contact these seem to be immune to and that's stuff we didn't even get into yesterday oh that might be interesting uh, to touch on but yeah. Um, so yeah and, and then the other thing i'm not interested in is well i'm interested in it but i just you know keep it to a minimum in a way because um the thing that i'm most interested in is stuff that's going on right now like what's emerging right now in in the you know the first person experience that gets relayed to you and that would be uh so so less about the hill abduction thing as being in my lab which um to me that you know like i, I you know like i get kind of I mean, the Hill story has been is is uh, you know now almost fifty years old. So yeah, no, it's done poorly, man. See, not even hard to prove it was done poorly. Um, actually, majority of ufologists today endorse what we say because, frankly, they blew the case. They didn't even mention Canada. 
you got to wonder what the investigators were doing. I mean, Betty and Barney Hill clearly say they lost a full day in Canada, but yet none of the investigators touched that. Why is that? Oh, I and didn't I've realize got, that. Oh, yeah, and I've got – there's hundreds of interviews that you can listen to them talk about this. They didn't know. To put this in perspective for you, the Hills didn't know. They couldn't tell you the name of the hotel they checked into. They checked in and checked out. They had to sign in and sign out. They couldn't tell you the name of the hotel. Plus, they ate breakfast across the street from the hotel, still could not tell you the name of the hotel or where they had breakfast. Later in the day, they asked for directions. Uh, Barney described him as an Irish cop, a white Irish cop. They described him as a black man. That's an impossibility. They were gone. They had been taken. They, they lost a whole day in Canada, a whole day. They couldn't account for the day. They couldn't tell you where they stayed or where they'd been. This was classic 1960s, 1970s abduction uh, stuff. I mean, this is classic. Um, and, it, and it just amazed me how many researchers blew it. And then stuff like the pull-down maps. How many contactees have you heard talk about pull-down maps or drawers that slide out? Or even just regular syringes, and that and that this the, the the that event took place on the road in New Hampshire. Yeah, and and their own words, they tell you there was four men on the side of the road that flagged them down, stopped the car, brought them out of the car, and looped their arms underneath that, and then walked them to the stairs to the craft. This is classic mill lab. This is not alien abduction. This is classic mill lab. Uh, so you you just got to wonder how they blew these cases that bad. I mean it's. It's, it's not that important of a case anymore because it is 50 years old and both members of the case are dead and all you got now is hearsay uh, and, and poorly written books. But, I mean, you know, the case was really blown. I mean, it, this is such an obvious thing to see. And when I presented this on Coast to Coast originally, you know, we caught a lot of flack for it. But nowadays, uh, I, I've even heard George have to correct people on Coast to Coast trying to take credit for the theory. Um, you know, when it comes down to the evidence, if you base it on abduction criteria and Millab criteria, the abduction happened in Canada, the Millab happened in the United States. Uh, and, and, and I don't know why Betty and Barney Hill would be different than everybody else that's been abducted or Millab. They wouldn't be. Uh, that's the point. Their case wouldn't be any different than anybody else's cases because ET does things in a specific line and in a specific way, just like the government does. And that's important to remember when you're doing these cases. There is a path. There is a travel line that you can follow. Uh, we do have 50 years of cases now. Plus, we've got the ancient cases. So it's not like it used to be. And, and instead of people being honest and upfront and saying, okay, we made a mistake. Um, you know, we, we made a mistake here. Why don't we go back and correct this mistake? No, they don't want to do that. They would rather just keep portraying the same old BS that it's real when it's not. You know, and that's a big problem in this field. It's not just with this case. It's with a lot of cases. Um, they were poorly investigated, poorly done, and then when real researchers came back decades later and re-looked at them, the cases turned out to be something different. Um, but that's any research. You know, when you, the longer you do this research, the more we're going to find out, the more we're going to understand, the easier it's going to be to determine if someone's telling the truth or lying or exactly what kind of case is it. And these are important things, and what ICAR does, it's stuff we have to know. Uh, it took us two decades to get abduction criteria to where we wanted it. Um, it wasn't like, you know, somebody asked me the other night, oh, y'all did that overnight? Oh, no, two decades. And when you say criteria, what do you mean by criteria? Abduction criteria. Um, like the questions know, you ask? The, the f uh, no, we, we know, like when I was reading through your stuff over the last couple of days, 
Uh, I'm expecting to see certain things in it, which some of you are missing, by the way. So me and you need to talk about that. Okay. Um, but yes, and, and that's that's part of this they, thing uh, too. Is you know, I, you know, feel free to ask me whatever you need oh, to no, ask. No, no, no. But but to, to make a long story short, we learned. Okay, to put this in perspective for the listening audience. We know that you're abducted pre-birth. We know they take your mother and they check you out when you're in the womb. We know that. We've got literally a thousand cases. No, so when you say you know that, does that mean a hundred percent, or does that mean like? A, no, it's a hundred percent because we know that from the contactees themselves, they're being taken when they're pregnant. We know it. I mean, this isn't something that we yep, have to speculate about. Yeah. yeah. So we know they're being taken. So we know you're in the stomach when they're being taken. So yeah, you're pre you're abducted pre birth. And then when you're born, the first couple of years, they're going to take you with your mother. You're not going to remember any of that. But around age four or five, maybe six, it's between three and seven. I'm not sure why uh, different people remember sooner or later. I, don't, I have no explanation for it. But some people start remembering around age three, some as late as age seven. But they start to have children contact there. And a lot of times it will manifest itself as you'll hear a lot of them say something like my bug-eyed friends are coming to visit, which still freaks me out when I hear a kid say that, by invisible the way. Invisible playmates. And yeah, and lots of invisible playmates and stuff like this. This is stuff that we've been tracking, you know, for three decades now. So, you know, it's not like we're, we're speculating about it. We, we have enough cases that we know this is part of what goes on in abductions. We also know starting at puberty up until about age 30 is when they do most of their nasty stuff. The breeding experiments, the emotional drain experiments, the types of experiments on body parts, what can the body endure, what can the mind endure, uh, all the hybrid stuff goes on during then. Any of the programs where they're putting people together or separating them also go on in these time periods. Well, we know what that results in personality-wise for a contactee because we've interviewed so many of them. And when it results in personality-wise, meaning like uh, people who well, show signs of trauma or so? Yeah, well, sometimes it'll be trauma, but it's, it's more than that because it, it distinctively changes an individual's personality. Uh, what it really does is it, you know, once you come, once it, it hits your head like you, once it hits you in the back of the head that this is something going on, you change. You can't help yourself. You have to change. And that, that took place in, 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 in I'm, you know, I'm going to say right here, and I've said this a million times on this, you know, these podcasts that I do, um, that I'm very skeptical to say, you know, to give it a name, like alien abduction, you know, like, because I just, from my firsthand experience, I, I, that just, I can't honestly say that because I don't have the, I, I just don't have the direct memory. But um, I can say that in about 2006, a bunch of stuff happened. Um, all, and none of it really had to do with like, you know, I mean, there weren't, there weren't UFOs landing in my yard. Let me put it that way. It was all just odd little synchronicities, odd things that finally emerged and, and just a sense of needing to look into this, like a, like an oppressive sense of needing to dig into this that created a, um, like, uh, I mean, I definitely feel confident saying that something is going on and it occurred right around that time. I would have been about 45 years old. Yeah, yeah. And, and and see for you, you you have to look at it because you're looking at it from as an individual. So you have to convince yourself. You have to see enough evidence or have enough open-minded experiences that you know what you're seeing is real, which is the way it should be. You shouldn't go around and listen to someone like me or anyone else say, "Well, your experiences are real or not," because in the end, you have to determine that. We can give you guidelines and help you to understand specific things. You know, people don't understand what iCard does. Everybody thinks that we're here to prove the existence of ET. We're not. We could care less if the everyday person knows that E.T. is here. Now, we're not interested in that. What we're interested in is finding out why they're here, why they're taking our friends and family, and what can we expect long-term from this. But as far as the everyday people, we don't care if they know. It, it doesn't make a difference to contactees because, frankly, there's nothing they can do about this in any direction. They can't help us. All they're going to do is criticize us, and there's nothing the government can do to stop this. 
So there's no need to involve them. And ET's the same way. Just all you got to do is judge them by their actions. ET tells the contactees that they want to know that they're here. Uh, the abductees don't get to know, but that's more because they can't handle it emotionally uh, is reason they don't know. It's, it's up to us how much we're going to get to know. It's what it comes down to, Mike, is it's really up to us. If you really want to know why ET's taking you or what's involved in your abductions, you're going to have to open up enough that you can deal with this on a personal every day. In other words, you're going to have to live your life and still realize that you are an abductee and you are a contactee, and you're going to have to deal with that part as well as you know, going to work every day, cleaning your yard, you know, just daily routines. That's what it has to become a part of your life. And once you do that, it's much easier to, to retain information. ET wants us to know, but they don't want us to go nuts. And since a lot of this stuff, frankly, is, is pretty harsh and pretty rough, you don't want to remember that. That's why most contactees don't even start having clear recollection until usually in their 40s. And is, uh, that, is that just is that what kind of – where do you get that data? Is this just anecdotal or do you have like uh, charts and spreadsheets? I'll Should tell you exactly how we get it. What you do is, is this is what we did. When you take your contactees, some of the questions it will ask you, when is your first conscious experience? You know, and you'll get stuff like uh, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 45. Well, when we came up with the abductee, contactee, keeper, that's how we did it. We went through all of our case reports and found out when things were going on in specific lives for people. It's also how we backtrack to find out, to lay out the decade time zones that we use today. So at the time, there was about 5,400 cases on file. So we and went through all of those I'm just going to interrupt a bunch here because yeah. this, this is fascinating to me, and I just want to know a little bit. So when you say you have cases on file, does that mean that someone filled out a form on the Internet, or does that mean that an investigator went to a home and, and then interviewed someone directly? Okay. The way it works usually is if, if a case is submitted anonymous, it doesn't even get counted for anything. It, we don't even use it. We'll, we'll go through it just to look and see if it's got any of the abduction criteria or keywords in it, but we, we can't really use it because – we just don't if it's anonymous. But to make a long story short, we take all the cases and we put them together. They're actually on a database. What's going to happen is you're going to submit a report to us. If we think it's a legitimate report, someone from the organization will contact you either via phone, email, or in person depending on where you are. Um, you know, because like it's not applicable for us to like our European contactees in Africa. There's no way we're going to we're going to meet them face to face unless they happen to be in the U.S. So a lot of that's going to be done via the phone or via the internet. Internet's a great tool now because you got cams. You know, even when we do online interviews, we usually make the person get on camera. I want to see their face when I'm talking to them. Uh, I, I want to see it. It's important to see someone's facial expressions when they're describing what happens to them. It's it's a big part of if someone's lying or telling the truth. Um, it really you can really determine a lot just from facial facial recognition. So uh, it's a big part of it. But to make a long story short, yes, I mean usually they're going to submit a case, and somebody will pick up the case and they'll say, okay, like say Mike submits it, and they'll look and they'll say, okay, well he keyworded in his conversation sixty times. And then the word, what do you, when you say keywording, what does that mean? Keywords means words we expect the contactee or an abductee to say. If so truly an abductee or contactee, we expect to hear certain words come out of your mouth. Uh, if we don't, we're not even going to bother with you. We're, we're not even going to bother. We're going to be like, nice, thanks for writing in, but we have no interest. And I assume that you're not going to share what those words are here on a, on a public forum. Well, some of it is. I mean, well, see, some abduction criteria is public, like the blue plasma is public. Um, <clears throat> you know, stuff like when you say about the black almond eyes. Well, we expect to hear you say that. But what we also expect to hear later on, if you're a long-term contactee, we expect you to tell us what the eye looks like underneath the patch. 
Okay, because the big black almond things are not their eyes. They're patches they wear over their eyes. Uh, so we're going to expect you to, somewhere along the line, we're going to expect you to know what those eyes look like. And then does this show up in initial reports or does it take, like, uh, you know, time, like, you know, after years of self-investigation on the part of the abductee? Well, that's going to vary, Mike, according to what, like I said earlier, what the abductee themselves can handle. In your case, see, you sound like you're in the start of what we call the awakening, all right? That ET is trying to wake you up because they have a purpose for you, maybe a communicator, maybe a keeper, something along those lines. But they've got something in mind for you, okay? So they're gonna. We're just using this as an example. And, and you say this just from having spoken to me, we, and just so the audience knows just, that just, you and I just from reading what you sent me. Yeah, but actually, just reading from what you sent me. Um, the way it's layered, it seems like they're interjecting, like like they slap you in the ass. Wham, Mike, wake up, uh, pay attention, because they don't have to let you remember anything. Remember this. There is no need for them to let you remember anything at all. They can completely wipe your memory and put anything back that they want. So the fact that you're getting recall suggests that they want you to know. And the only reason that happened is somewhere on board the ship or in one of the, the zones you were in, you showed some kind of interest or some kind of willingness to cooperate. That's the only reason they would even do this. They're not going to do it for any other reason. You know, people always think it's an accident. No, it's not an accident. They've been doing this for 10,000 plus years. Trust me, they got this down to a science. Uh, there's no need to leave any memories behind. That There's not even any need to leave any trace marks. Like when you're talking about the orange light. You know what that was, right? I that have was no the, idea what that was. But that was the key, key flashpoint to let you know you were taken or put back. It could have been either way. The way you described it, it sounds like when they put you back, you saw the light. Because I was reading further when you said you didn't get home till 11. So it's suggesting at that point is when they put you back. And they let you remember that because they wanted you to know something happened. They wanted you to know that. They, and I they, will add that the person I was with, when, when I talked, uh, the, and people who have listened to this program can, uh, uh, you know, I've told the stories you know, too many times already online. Um, when uh, I spoke to the 12-year-old boy who was also with me at the time in 1974, the next Monday at school, uh, I said, hey, something strange happened Friday night. And then he just blurted out, and I remember this very clearly. He said, yeah, UFO with lights and everything. Actually, the direct quote is a UFO with fucking lights and everything. <laughs> and uh, and then my thought was, my initial thought was, was that is how things get blown out of proportion, and he's making it up, and I never brought it up again. I dropped the subject. I've never talked to him about it in the last, uh, uh, you know, what is it? But now? that's you know, common. See, that that's a key word. In other words, when you – all right, let me, let me put this in a, in a way most of the audience understand. Contactees are their own worst enemy. They will shoot themselves in a the damn foot on a regular basis. Like when you mentioned about laying back and going back to sleep, you lift up, you look out your window, you notice something going on, but you go ahead and go back to sleep. Well, you should have got your butt up out of bed and seen what was going on, but you're not going to. That's not how it's going to work. Uh, you're going to look up, and you're going to feel this like, well, blah, and then you're just going to lay your head back down and you're going to go back to sleep and then they're going to come do what they want to do and take you. They did not have to even let you remember that much, but they did. They're conditioning you a little bit at a time to bring you out of the closet. Um, you know, I, like I said, I, I have no idea what it could be for and I'd really have to do a lot more research on you to really to make sure that you are 100% a contactee and that's what they're after. But from what I've read so far, that's what it would suggest that they're be in the age range that you're in since you're in your 40s. And the fact of the matter is that you're, you're having selective recall suggests that they've got something they want you to do. Now, I can, I can tell you this. 
if you start programming your mind at night to be much more receptive and asking questions like, what can I do? Can I get more involved? You'll be surprised how much more recall you will get out of this. Uh, but to be honest with you, Mike, you got to be careful because some of the shit you don't want to remember. Very true enough. And I've talked to plenty of people, you know, and I've and I've talked to, uh, you know, both crowds. I've talked to the Love and Light folks that, you know, you know they share stories that sound magical and, and you know, wonderful angels. Okay. And I've and I've also talked to the folks that, uh, you know, are, are traumatized and they're dealing with something, you know, nightmarish. Yeah. And the thing about it is the reality of it is, is it's really in between. Uh, there are some nightmare stuff that goes on. And like I said, it's mostly during the breeding years, you know, 12 to 30. Uh, there's usually, you know, that's when usually the, the most stuff goes on. And it's not, it's not the fact that they're intentionally doing this. This is what they have to do. And it's not like they're trying to torture humans. It's just part of what they're doing. It's one of the reasons they do take the memories away because they know we can't handle them. Like having an arm taken off or put back on or having your eyes taken out and set down and, and then put back in your head. Well, you're conscious when this is going on, but do you really want to remember this when you put, were put back? Well, no, you don't. Why would you want to remember that? It's just going to be a horror, horror story for you, and you're not going to be able to get around it, and it's going to really mess your life up. So they do try to keep that out of everybody's heads, and what, but they really are trying. They're looking for selective people. They want people like Katarina Wilson, Leah Haley, Jim Sparks, Whitley Strieber, all of them. They want them out there talking. Whether or no, not no, here, I'm going to just jump in here and, and say, like, so you, this is going fast and furious, and I like this, but... Um, so we can slow down, take uh, time. No, 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 I'm all, I'm all for it. I think, you know, I talk fast, too, so we can, we can uh, <laughs> you know, I've, um, you know, I said, basically, I had, like, a profound experience in, in uh, mm-hmm. well, not, let's, not so much a profound experience, but, but basically, um, in profound. 2005, I basically realized I couldn't, I couldn't deny this anymore, and basically had to, like, look into it, and, uh, and... And then in 2009, in the spring of that year, I started an online blog where I've been sharing my stuff. And I've, in on one sense, that's crazy, right? I'm going online, I'm using my real name, I'm talking about experiences that, you know, would get me, uh, you know, declared insane, like if I needed to do a job interview or something like that. You know, so, so you know, you basically hinted that there's a plan, and I've got a role to play, uh, or some sort of sense of mission or something like that. And then, and then at the same time, I literally, if you read some of my earlier posts in my blog, I'm like, uh, I'm pretty stressed out and I'm kind of musing over the fact that like, you know, why the hell am I doing this? And, and I, and I use the word compelled. Compelled, like, yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so it's very strange, you know, like I've got like, uh, you know, I'm doing all these online interviews, I'm publishing all this stuff, the focus is alien abduction, and, I, and in a funny way, I can't give, I can't, I don't have a good answer as to why I'm doing it. Well, look at it like this. I, I <clears throat> just in the last 10 years, <clears throat> between iCar and the Paranormal Radio Network, I spent about a quarter of a million dollars. Just after Katrina, I spent over 100000 just on the station itself. Now, I don't make any money back for this, so I basically just donated that quarter of a mil to these two organizations so they can look for the truth. Now, why would I do that? You know, if, if, if I didn't wholeheartedly know this was real, why would I do that? I mean, that's, that's retirement. I could be retired right now on that. Uh, I could have that sitting in a bank rolling interest and, and be sitting pretty. But no, I, I dumped all that money into these two organizations, mainly because it has to be done. Contactees have to be informed of what's going on, and they have to understand that there is a madness or, or uh, a method behind the madness. And, um, and really, it's what we are. We're truly a support organization with research. That's what we do. Um, everybody gets confused. Like I said earlier in the show, they get confused. They think we're here to prove ET's existence. We're not. We're here to find out what we can do to help contact these. 
That's all we're interested in. It's why we have so many contactees. You know, somebody asks me about data all the time, and you can find out a lot of ICARS data. Join the organization, become a director, sign a non-disclosure agreement, because we are not a 5013C. We are a private research organization, which means we are totally protected from the government. See, my, people don't understand this, like MUFON. MUFON has to make all of its records public. They're a 5013C, which means anybody who makes donations has to be made public. Anybody making reports, that information can be gleaned by anyone. Um, at any given time, you can go in and ask to see uh, their entire records start to finish. You can find out who's been making donations. You can find out who's been dropping off materials. You can find out anything that they got in their databases. There's no protection for contactees there. Contactees need to be protected. Not all of them are like me that are independently employed can, and can go on their mouse. Most of them have jobs where if they, people found this out, they would either get laughed off or fired. You know, so it's, it's a very important to keep part of this secret. Actually, there's two reasons, main reasons why. One, to protect the contactee from rebuttal or anything else. And two, let me put it this way. If I was to make everything public that I knew, do you think I'd ever be able to tell who was lying and telling the truth anymore? Because from that point on, like, yeah. all anyone has to do is, like, just, you know, a few mouse clicks and they can have any uh, yeah, they can just go about, through it. about, like, what color a belt buckle is or something like that. Yeah, it's, you know, when we released the Blue Plasma, no one talked about the Blue Plasma or even downloads before iCar released this. Now, this is common amongst all contactees now. They talk about it all the time, like they've been knowing it for decades. But iCar only released this about six or seven years ago. Well, the downloads we le released about a decade ago. But and, and, and so I'm familiar with the downloads, and, mm -hmm. and I have some funny stories of my own in that department. And what is the blue plasma? The blue plasma is a very interesting thing. This is important abduction criteria. You know, grays, people say grays are grays, but in reality, grays are not gray. This is why we call this abduction criteria. When somebody comes up and tells me I've seen a big plaque eye and he's all gray, I'm thinking, oh, no, you're not a contactee. I'm really thinking that. Because, in fact, grays tend to, when they've just fed, tend to be almost a cobalt electric blue color. And then and when you say just fed... They, they eat the plasma. The, the plasma, this is really weird stuff. To make, this is kind of, we're going to have to get a little involved here to get so people understand. What was going on initially is we kept getting all these reports from contactees about this blue color. People were seeing, I was immersed in this blue color. Or I was surrounded by this blue color. At first, we thought it was like the lighter beam or something taking them. But then we found out, like the one guy said, I thought I was going to suffocate, but then I realized I could breathe. I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? So after about eight years of hearing this, we started pre-programming contactees to find out what this blue color was. The first five that came back talked about these blue plasma pools on board the ships that the ships use for fuel and the grays use for food. And it's self-replicating. It, it reproduces itself. And when you say a pool, I mean, is it like a vat that's like in the middle of a flying saucer? You know, when they describe it, they do describe it like a very large vat because they immerse humans in it. And every human that's ever been in this stuff tells me the same thing. When they come out, they feel like they've been reborn, like their their whole body is tingling, like they had just had a shot of energy through the whole. I guess the closest we could compare it to is like a cortisone shot because, uh, you know, when people get a full shot of cortisone, it puts their whole body, like makes you feel 10 years younger. And this, is, this stuff has the same effect on humans. And apparently you can immerse humans completely in it because they can it, it produces oxygen while they're in it so which i find fascinating itself but the ships use it as fuel the grays uses it as food we knew early on that the grays absorbed their food through their skin because uh, contactees have been talking about that since the 60s but we didn't we, and this was a bad assumption we assumed it was like sunlight or something 
you know, like, like a plant doing photosynthesis. We assumed, and I say assume because it was an assumption, that that's what it was. But after two decades of research and literally two or 3,000 contactees, that's not what it turned out to be. It turned out to be that they absorbed this blue. And why this is so important, and, and we should have never released this, but why this is so important is when they have just fed, they're like a cobalt blue. The longer they go without feeding, they change colors. They'll get a lighter blue, then kind of towards a gray. Then they'll even move towards a translucent white color as the food leaves their system. So the food itself, when they absorb it in their skin, actually changes the color of their, their appearance. So we know now, you know, why these grays look like this. But we also know that if someone's telling us they're seeing like a silver gray, that's, they're not seeing. That's not what they're seeing. Uh, there's something else going on. There. Either they're not having an experience or they're not really paying attention to what's going on, just like the eye patch thing. If you're on board the ship or in one of the uh, rooms, half the time they're not wearing those patches. They see their eyes, which are, by the way, are freaky. Uh, you may not have experienced it yet, Mike, or you may have experienced it and just not know it yet. But um, when you see them the first time, I'm not going to tell you what they look like. I'd rather you find out on your own, besides that's abduction criteria anyway. But I'll tell you this much. They're a little bit bigger than eyes. They're not all that different shaped than eyes. But when you see them because of the way the color works, you, there's no doubt that it's an alien eye you're looking at. Uh, I, I really can't get more detail than that because I'd be giving away too much information. But uh, still, and, and the way we know this is I can tell you for a fact, for a fact, I have heard this description of these eyes no less than 900 times, no less. So for us, it's no longer circumstance to circumspect. We have enough evidence now to say, yes, this is what these eyes look like. And uh, now when we're talking to contactees, when we drive a conversation, you know, I'll say, well, hey, Mike, um, you know, you're on board the ship and you would, they were doing this and they had you in, in whatever in this field. And then uh, the grays come around you and they start working on you. Usually when they start working on you, two or three of them will have the patches on. And then the ones actually running the equipment usually won't. Uh, which I don't think I should have said that either, but still. Okay, <laughs> you if you want me to edit it out, just tell me if you want me to edit that kind of thing you, you out. That. That's okay. I, I, I actually do like to let abduction criteria slip sometimes. It's Does it make Bud Hopkins crazy? Or? I don't think Bud really cares. Bud, this, this, while we're on that subject, Bud, Bud's research runs about 65 to 70% in tandem with ours, meaning like he believes that 10 to 15% of the population is being abducted. He knows about the gray's patches on their eyes. He knows quite a lot of this stuff. So our research is about 65% in tandem. Daryl Sims, Javon Smith, and Mary Rodwell, our research is about 75% in tandem. See, this is something I'm glad you brought this up. When initially I was with MUFON, we did the first case study, which was about 4,800 cases. Um, and this is every abduction case we could find, by the way. Now, some of these may have not even been really legit cases. I'll be honest about that. But we took all of those cases initially and went through and made a form of abduction criteria. Uh, and then we took that, and then we went through Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs' work and uh, John Mack's work and found everything we could find in there that was relative to what we had already learned from this study. So we combined all that together. Then we spent the next two decades, with, well, the well, last decade and a half with ICAR, you know, drawing in more people, seeing if this is still holding true. So since then, we've added about another 5,000 cases. So now you've got literally you've got three you've got about seven six or seven thousand gray cases that that are running in tandem and this is going on in all the cases not just one of them but all the cases so that's why when the peace love and lighters come see me I got to get so skeptical with them I'm like well wait a minute you're not having any of these kind of experiences so I'm having issues that you're even being taken uh, it's not that there's not good experiences involved with ET there is but 
the thing of it is, is, is everyone who's selected, because not, and while I'm saying that, I mean everyone who's selected, there may be 10 kids in a family, they will initially take all of them. But usually they will only end up keeping one or two of them as regular contactees. Uh, because that's the ones that have what they're looking for. The rest of the family may not. Smaller families, they may use more of them because more people may have it. It, it really just comes down to what they need in that family. And if it's there, they're going to use you. If it's not, they're not going to use you. Um, uh, and, and see, things like this, you, you find with other research as well. But anyway, we, we took all this data and put it together. Uh, so we took everybody's data who was out there in the field and, and incorporated in Oz, with the exception of David Jacobs, because I don't know where he's going with these reptilian aliens apparently he don't know how to read the ancient history or something um or pay attention to what contactees are saying they're not even reptilians so you uh, so you've just you've just taken any data that that he presented and just ignored it no no that's not true that would not be a fair statement there are some stuff in his research that we did use and did he offer to, up that that research or, or? No, he did not he hates us by the way uh with a passion uh i guess he got mad um we coined the acronym ICAR, and about a year later, we were doing a search on it, and lo and behold, if we didn't find another ICAR. That was which, interesting. I was, it was funny because I searched ICAR and started like reading through a site, and then it took me like 10 minutes. I'm like, wait a minute. What is up? This doesn't not the right sense. site. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is, this is Dave Jacobs' site. Jacobs' site. And, uh, and so that was kind of a little feud of contention. Now, when I was in Laughlin, I tried to bail the hatchet with him and say, look, dude, you, know, you, you, should've, you just should have just done an acronym search before you – you know, named it, but I, it wasn't no big deal to me. It, it hurt us a little bit in the beginning because he was listed higher than we are now. We're listed higher than he is. But, you know, originally he was listed higher. So a lot of our people were going there and then getting mad because they found out they were in the wrong place. Uh, and then they would come find us and, you know, be kind of aggravated because they just spent like a week, you know, dealing with Jacobs. And um, anyway, we, we did use some of his, uh, some of his base research is good. What happened with David, I think, is Mike. He got about halfway through his base research, and then he got in a rut, and that's where he's been ever since. And I asked him this point blank in, in, in uh, Laughlin. I said, you know, I've heard you speak places, David, and, and I know you think that this, this, and this is going on, but you won't even mention this in any of your research. And he's like, ah, oh, and then Bud got into the conversation. You should have been there for this. That would have been deep- amazing. Yeah, well, it was the three of us standing in the, um, you know, the uh, book room, well, not the book room, where they sell stuff at. We just took over the back of the building and had a two-and-a-half-hour conversation, and the whole place just stopped. Everybody just swarmed around us because we were really, really got into some really in-depth stuff. I mean, stuff you don't even hear in lectures we were talking about. And, uh, but the point being, I was like, David, you, you, why not? And Bud's over here going, well, yeah, because Bud's kind of the same way because, you know, Bud's moved on with his research. He's, he's, a, he's progressed and advanced with his research, but David just stopped. And he, it's like he got stuck in a rut. And then, you know, the Emma Woods thing came out, which i got to be honest with you, that's not all, David. Half of that's on Emma. And, and this is something I want to say this because so I know you got a different audience and a lot of people do. Um, the thing about it is y'all can blame David all you want. You know, he did make some mistakes. I'm not going to lie to you. When he asked her about his knickers and stuff like that, he made some serious mistakes. But after phone call three or four, Emma shouldn't have took any more calls. She should have said, you know what, dude, we're not going to talk anymore. But they, there's 10 calls on the Internet, and I know there's twice as many calls as that, which means there was something else going on here. You know, maybe they had gotten too friendly with each other because it, it's a tough thing when you do abduction research. It's like any other research uh, of this kind. I mean, any other kind of therapeutic research, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so you've got to be real careful here. It's easy for these kind of things to evolve, so you've got to be really careful. And I think that might have been what happened because when you listen to them, I got – 
the original ones on the site. I play them every once in a while. When you listen to them, you can tell there's an air of familiarity about these two, uh, maybe too much of a familiarity. And I think, so I don't want to hate on this David for this. I think Emma was just as guilty as David was. But she was the one that was getting up at night and writing letters in somebody else's name to everybody. So I'm like, um, you know, she's as, at least is as guilty as he is. So, you know, credit needs to be given where credit's due. When you screw up, you need to take it and say, yeah, screw it up. And in this case, they both just need to admit it that they both screwed up and move on. And to put it in retrospect, you know, several people came out against David when this happened. Some of his contactees. Now, you remember the Carol Rainey thing with Bud Hopkins. Yep. Carol came out. Now, Bud and I, I don't know if you know this or not, Bud and I share contactees, about a dozen of them. Some of his more famous contactees are, are contactees for ICAR uh, that came to us afterwards. They found us and realized, oh, well, we might know a little bit more than he did. And, uh, you know, like Katarina Wilson. I Matter of fact, answer, yeah, I, I, that was the first she, one. I was the only, the only show she will appear on is mine. The only person she will talk about this with is me. And uh, so the the thing about it is, is it shows you the difference, you know, where we were ten years ago, where we are today, where everybody else was. Icar has taken that next step where the other researchers haven't, and the contactees have taken that step with us. They've come along with us. You know, I like Bud, and I think he's done a lot of good research over the years. So, you know, so Bud's contactees just naturally progressed to us. And Bud, you know, in the last years, his health hasn't been as good as it was. So, you know, he can't keep up with the workload he used to have. So a lot of them have come over with us. And what I found from them, more importantly, was none of them had anything bad to say about Bud. None and, I, of and I will jump in right there. I have worked with Bud Hopkins briefly. I've spent, I don't know how many hours in, with him directly, you know, maybe four or five hours with him directly and mm -hmm. uh, i've been completely impressed uh, you know and i'm just talking just He's just good. a very sensitive caring guy so if you're gonna if you're gonna be dealing with these kind of life issues he's a very very supportive uh, character yeah very impressed by him uh, i was and, and you know and see that's because uh kate wilson wrote to me right off the bat about oh am i going to take a stand on this and i said well i'm not supposed to since because i'm international director but I did. I instantly mailed all the contactees that him and I share, which I said, which is about a dozen. And they all wrote back to me and said, Joe, uh-uh. He, he, he's always been up front. He's always been honest. He's never tried to take advantage of us. And 10 of these are women. Two of them are men. And uh, they all signed off on Kay Wilson's thing. And so I was quite impressed because, you know, I hear contactees talk about us like that all the time, which really makes me feel good. But I don't hear them talk about other researchers like that, with the exception of Bud and uh, John Mack. <clears throat> Other than that, I really don't hear that, uh, you know, but like in all fairness to, to people like Yvonne Smith and well, no, I can say that about Mary Rodwell, too, because soon had Suzanne Hansen and Jean and all say she's like the cat's meow. So you can see the people who are out there that really care and the ones that don't. Uh, some people are in this to make a name. Some people are in this is because they actually care about what's going on and really, really want to help people. And, and that's the ones we're friends with. So it works out real well for us. Hey, let me. Um, you've been using a bunch of terms here, and I just want to uh, let's let's define some of these terms. You said uh, you used the term keepers. Yeah. And what does that mean? Keepers for ICAR means keepers are or someone who has reached a point of awakening, complete awakening. They usually have quite a bit of recall. Um, they'll they'll remember from that point forward. They'll usually have like a seventy to eighty percent recall of everything that goes on with them. They're consciously working with ET now. I don't mean they're out there plotting against the human race. I mean they're doing stuff like they'll deal with the hybrid babies 
or they'll help with contactees on board the ship. Or when they're in the green room or the store room, store room, like we like to call it, they'll come in and talk with them, get conversations going just to ease them, keep them at mind. You know, the ones that are, and the keepers are also the ones that help select the next generation of keepers or communicators, the ones that will be following behind them to keep these projects running. It's what they do. And the reason we're so interested in them is because they're the ones that have the most of the recall. Uh, people like Kay Wilson, Jim Sparks, they're all fit into that category. You can either make them a keeper <clears throat> or a communicator. But they have a specific goal. They are out there pushing an agenda uh, about alien contact and how it works and what can you expect and what you should expect You know, when all of this goes down. Uh, and they're quite honest about it. They're going to tell you up front that not everything you're going to experience is going to be good. I mean, they're very honest about it, and that's the way it should be. So that's basically what a keeper is. They're just an individual that has come to the point where they've, they, they know they're contacting, they've been fully and functionally aware of it, they've been pushing a point, asking questions, pushing E.T. for answers, and then somewhere along the line, E.T. says, okay, it uh, looks like you can handle this, looks like you can handle watching what goes on, because you've got to remember, keepers also see some of the experiments that happen to humans from puberty in their 20s and stuff. So you've got to have a pretty con strong constitution <clears throat> to start off with. Now, when this takes place, are they in their own, now this is, I'm just, this is, I've read a ton of, ton of this information and, and i'm and i'm kind of whatever i, I don't quite know what to do with there. it there's a lot of it out there um so someone um they talk about uh you know like i've heard so many stories of people who write in first person you know there i was on the ship and i was performing this duty i was escorting people down halls i was i was calming people down and they write about it almost as if they are in an altered personality well you could say that it's not so much that it's an altered personality in the fact that it's just something that contactees learn to do. Um, it's, it's like, it's like it, you, you can separate this world from that world. It's the only way I can really explain it. Um, you know that you're here when you're working for them. And then, you know, you're here when you're at your job at wherever the policeman, fireman, Walmart, politician, whatever. So your lives are separate, even though it's all the same thing. I mean, you live in this. You live this. Uh, it's all the same thing, but you do separate it because there's a need to keep them separated. There's a need to understand that you live both these lives, but there's a need to keep separate. So sometimes when the people are in the now, they're writing like out of a body, like almost like an out of a body experience. Uh, that's how they're writing it. But what they're doing is they're simply just relaying the experiences as they can remember it in the terms that they can deal with. I guess in uh, <clears throat> in human terms, because communicating something in a telepathic form is much differently than trying to put it down to pen and paper. And if you're not an articulate writer, it's really a pain in a you know what. Uh, so it, it's 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 almost like sometimes it's almost like it's being written by a third party. At first, we used to think maybe the Greys were taken over or something, but that ain't what was going on. Okay, here's another. You use the term mm -hmm. communicators. Yeah, communicators are people that work for the aliens doing what we're doing right now. Discussing this subject everywhere they can, anywhere they can, with anybody who will listen to it. That's what communicators do. Uh, and they try to portray this as close to the truth as they know it. Now remember, when it comes to contactees, there's baselines and all contact. But then there's a whole section of contact that is entirely and separately different in each and every case. Which means a lot of it's cover memory and BS, but still, it is there. So that's why I say that they're portraying it to the best of their abilities as they know it. So it, it's interesting to see them do it, too. But it's like the peace-loving lighters. Um, they always tell me E.T.'s love is here to save us, kiss us, whatever. And you know what the first thing comes out of my mouth? 
have you looked around on the planet lately? I mean, really, let's be honest about this. If they were here to save us, they have done a mm, piss-poor job at best. Uh, and there's no sign of anywhere that E.T. has tried to intervene on our behalf and tried to enlighten our species. Because let's be honest about this, Mike. The Greys tomorrow could put a ship at the North Pole, ship at the South Pole, and over every major city in the world and just all of a sudden appear to everyone. Sure, sure. Uh, and it hasn't form, happened, yeah. And, and bam, and just say, hey, look, you're going to unite your planet or we're going to wipe your planet out. Well, we'd be united within a week. We, we'd be united. We're all ready to kick ass. Uh, but none of that's going on. Because the reason why, and this is most important, is E.T. does not care about the overall majority of the people on this damn planet. They don't care. They have no interest in them whatsoever. They, as far as they're concerned, they're just a hindrance to what they're doing. Um, there's, there's no real, and, and another thing that's scary about this, and I don't know if you've experienced this not yourself and something you might want to think about, contactees in general in the last decade have been disassociating themselves emotionally with non-contactees, meaning that, you know, they go to work with their friends every day, but they have started, they have started not to feel, uh, there's a kindred spirit, kindred spirit between humans when they're in suffering or pain or, or being hurt. Sure, sure. Contactees are separating that, meaning that in the contactee group, in the core groups, they still feel that way. But to the general population of the planet, they do not. They do not have those feelings of that humanity anymore. So, so, what are you, so is it feelings of humanity or is it just feelings of, of like a non-kinship? So, um, you know, it's not... Well, yeah, maybe that's a good way of putting it because if if they all got wiped out, it you wouldn't be. Let's put it like this: there wouldn't be many tears over it. Uh, when and that's changed just in the last decade. Uh, before that, it would have been the same as if you know you lost all your family members, you'd been crying about it. But no, not now. It's almost like they know something's coming, and emotionally they're setting themselves up for it. Um, it, or is it that is it just like any other individual that might have experienced trauma where, let's say, and I mean, I'm just thinking of like the, the folks at the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting are going to have a deeper heart to heart in among themselves than maybe they would with, you know, with folks at their job. And they may feel a closer kinship to the to the folks that they meet at the AA meetings every Wednesday night. Yeah, well, see that, but see, that's they're functionally aware of it. What we're talking about is like when people are first coming into the groups, they've already feeling like this before they know they're a contactee or an abductee. See what I'm saying? That's where we got the information from initially. These were people that were coming into the organization and saying, you know, I've been having these weird experiences and I feel really weird about the rest of the population. Is this anything? And then they'll start talking about what they're feeling. And I found that to be interesting because these are people who haven't really haven't come to terms or understand what's actually happening to them. And in the regular contactee base, it's the same. Um, they're just, it's, most of them tell me it too. They, they, most of them say they feel like they're, they're, they're moving themselves for something oncoming uh, or getting ready for something that's oncoming that may be in some fam- form or fashion not good for everybody else on the planet. And then you know there's a full third of a contact. These have Holocaust dreams of some, of some pandemic that wipes across the planet. So, you know, when you start hearing these things in different sectors, you get a little nervous. Absolutely. You know, yeah, this is creepy know? stuff. And at the same time, yeah. um, I think, you know, there's also in among the, you know, the, almost I want to say like the UFO cults will uh, occasionally say, you know, the world's going to end on Wednesday or something like that. And, no, and, and it doesn't happen. So, so these, these uh, oppressive and frightening premonitions that people are sharing, you know, I pay attention, I listen, I, I take note, um, though at the same time I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not really rearranging my life to, uh, no. 
Now here, I'm going to interject here, and I may cut this out. And uh, so I, um, part of the reason I started this blog is just so I can talk to people. Um, You know, when I when I meet someone who seems to have shared experiences as as I do, I, uh, you know, call them up on the phone. I say, hey, let's exchange phone numbers, and I have what amount to very profound, deep, caring, heart-to-heart conversations on the on the on the phone with these people that I've known for five minutes, and then I go to a local party and see all the folks that I care deeply about in in my little town, and um, I feel I feel like cut off from them in a way that's hard to define. Yeah. Well, but you see, that, that's, that's, that's abduction criteria. That's one of the things we're looking for. You know, one of the first things we, we want to find out is, is when did you cut off ties with your best friends that are not contactees? And when did you start searching for other ones? Because that's what they do. You'd be surprised how many people in our organization alone that have found us, gotten divorced from their spouse, and then remarried another contactee and have been ungodly happy ever since. And, and I've heard uh, that story many times, and I, and I will um, also share that uh, <clears throat> I have, um, uh, during a very profound month, uh, the October of 2009, uh, so much crazy stuff went down in my life, just insane amounts of synchronicities and and meeting people under synchronistic circumstances, all somehow having to do with this UFO abduction phenomena. Uh, I'm this guy calls me up on the phone. And he says, "Mike, we should talk." And I'm like, "Great, what's up?" And he's like, um, "So we talked for a little while." And he's almost the same age, has almost the same set of experiences, including some profound experiences in the same year, uh, 1974. He had a, had a very profound uh, experience with a with missing time that he remembers some stuff, and that was that matches my experience in 1974. He's uh, about a year and a half older than I am. Hey, this is Mike. I'm chiming in during the editing process. Just so you know, what you heard um, just just before here was edited. I snipped out a little bit. I snipped out some personal details about this person that I um, said contacted me. Uh, just so you know, a lot of people contact me. A lot of people are pretty much the same age as me, and a lot of people have very similar experiences to me. And um, what I snipped out was some personal stuff. It was just very telling about this one individual. This individual I consider a friend. I feel a very strong kinship with the guy. And um, uh, so so I snipped it out. Um, it may not sound all that impressive, but there's some interesting details that Joe is responding to uh, in the follow-up here. Okay, um, just I just felt I should clarify that before we proceed on. Here we go. And you, when you see that's the thing, you're going to find these people, or, they or they're going to find yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to say. They, or they're going to find you. Um, this is this is quite common. And, and matter of fact, this is another thing we expect. We expect them to seek each other out because true contactees will always find each other. And it's amazing how close they are for never knowing each other. I have watched this more times than I should even probably talk about. The thing about it, we'll put this in perspective we all show up uh in vegas a few years back big contactee group we were going down for the crash retrieval conference right? sure which i've been to of, and i think that's a good conference yeah, yeah and um we, it was a bunch of icar members and a bunch of contactees who wanted to come meet some of the directors and myself because you know you don't always get to meet people so anytime you're close by they will big bunch of us right you would have thought because we all got drunk and smashed out of our mind and the bar took the whole bar over kicked everybody out the damn bar by the way and uh, you would have thought we all knew each other for decades, like we were friends for a hundred years. 
a lot of these people we were meeting for the first time. And, I mean, we're talking to each other literally like you would talk to your best friend or your spouse or somebody that you really trust and care about. And, and it's an amazing thing to watch. And it, and it was the entire group, you know. And that's why we say core groups because there are solid, hard core groups uh, of people that will find each other. I tell this to people all the time. If you find me out of the blue, it's probably because you're part of the group. Uh, where you, people would be in a group, I mean, there's no telling, but it's probably why. Uh, most people don't find me randomly. It's, it, I'm not as popular as Richard Dolan or Stanton Friedman, um, you know, mainly because I won't write any books. But still, you know, I have been on Coast a few times on, on some other shows. But the thing about it is, is so, you know, people find us. You know, they'll, or they'll find me personally. They'll listen to something, you know, like a friend of mine the other day, actually a contactee friend of mine the other day writes to me. He goes, man, I heard you talking, Joe. I can't believe you said that's a load of crap. <laughs> I'm like, really? I said, well, call me on your phone and tell me why it's a load of crap. <laughs> so he gets me on the phone and we're discussing it. And he goes, oh, well, maybe it's not a load of crap. But um, it was a very, very weird, weird thing. And it was a weird experience we were talking about. But, I mean, the two of us are talking like we've known each other for 20 years. We've known each other for like two weeks. Yep, yep, and and just so you know, um, I I have sensed that in my own set of experiences, and I, and part of the reason I go to these UFO conferences, including you know what used to be the Laughlin conferences and and is now the Open Minds conference, the reason I go there is because I I'm less interested in sitting in the audience and, and listening to you know speakers, uh, though that can be interesting, um, and I'm much more interested in interacting with the people, the attendees, and having what am I you know well, the yeah, term I right. use is, yeah. is heart-to-heart conversations. Well, no, that, that's the whole reason you go. I mean, that, that's the only – for us, and I, and I hate saying this, but it's true. I mean, everybody who speaks I've heard more than one time, okay? Come on, I've interviewed Stan Friedman 15 times. I've interviewed Richard Dolan 12 times, uh, and I'm, I'm personal friends with him. So if, if there are something new, I'm going to hear about it. Like, you know, when Karen comes on the air or something, she'll tell me about it. So um, I don't really go – I mean, I go to meet them, like have lunch with them, say hi, because really all the good conversations happen over lunch anyway or dinner or something or drinks. So, you know, I'll catch up with them, but I'm really there to meet ICAR members. For us, like that's why Stephen Bissett and I became such good friends. When I showed up at the first X conference, I showed up with like 100 people. You know, we, we just took over the conference. I mean, literally, we took over the conference. We took over the rooms. We were setting up interviews all over the place. We just rolled in and took over like it was our own damn private conference. And Stephen was just impressed with that. You know, he was like, damn. And then the next year we came in and, and basically did the same thing. And, and there's a set. One of these days I'm going to make these public, Mike. These are, these are gold, dude. You're going to love these. I've got 15 interviews that I did at the second X conference. That's what, eight years ago, ten years ago, on the state of ufology. You, you would love to hear these. If you listen to these and then listen to these same people today, you're going to be impressed that most of them are not even saying close to the same thing anymore. So, so, uh, so you're interviewing like what would be the researchers, the people who are uh, speaking? and Yeah, it was, I did. Uh, it was Richard Dolan, Alfred Weber, Michael Sala, Linda Moulton Howe, Paula Harris, uh, Monsignor Balducci yep. is one of the interviews. Uh, Stephen Bissett was one of the interviews, and there was, uh, I can't think right off the hand, but there was four or five other famous ufologists, very famous. Stanton Friedman was one of them, too, uh, and it's an outstanding set. But the reason I never made them public was, is we used my camcorder, and the video is beautiful. The audio is crap. I mean, you can hear, but it's just aggravating to me to listen yep. to it. And well, see now I bring I have media computers I bring with me when I travel now. I'll either bring my high dollar laptop, which is which was donated by an iCar member, by the way, or I got a computer I built for taking on the road, and it's a big old monster machine. And uh, but it has everything in it, so we just plug it up, plug in the camcorder right into it, and go. 
hook, put the mic in, put the camcorder in, and we're live, baby, all around the world, anywhere we want to be. Because I can now I have the ability to log into my servers from anywhere on the planet. I can even do it with cell phone if I want to and broadcast live right there. Uh, video, audio, the nine, your whole nine yards, over 140 countries and what the 18 or 20 venues were carried on now, uh, just that quick. So here, so here's something like there, there's this, uh, there's this oppressive sense of, of mission. There's this sense of uh, how to say it that something's impending. You know, people talk about this urgency, and it's palpable. You talk to people, and it's out there. And oh, it's out there. And at the same time, uh, there's this technology. You know, whatever. And I'm just going to use 2012 as a catchphrase. I don't know what that means. Everyone throws that term around like it's like yeah. it's so important. But but there's an implication in that term. And uh, and at the same time, what we're also seeing is exactly what you just described. This worldwide communication. This the you know the the the, the maturing of the internet as a as like a, a interactive communication tool seems to be dovetailing at the same time so i don't you know i don't know what disclosure means I, i'm bored to tears with the disclosure subject what <laughs> I, I can say <laughs> what i can say is that the tools are out there for i almost want to say the democratization of of the inter- information i mean you have the potential to crank out information and and i mean you're not cnn you know what i mean and then you can yeah. you can have a big impact i'm doing these interviews i'm doing like a dopey little blog you know and i'm getting people are listening and uh, actually got a, you get a nice clean pretty blog site i actually like the way it looks oh yeah that's uh, that and i'll tell you that comes from i was an art director in new york city uh doing print ads for a long time so i do have a uh, um uh, that's nice and clean i i really well i can see that in your writing because I, I when i was reading through it i'm like well he must have had at least some schooling or done a lot of it because it's really a clean form the way you write as well. So, and, and that would so see, if I could write like that, Mike, I would crank out two or three books to help contact these. But man, look, I got to be honest with you. I'll, I'll write like the other day I wrote uh, four chapters, right? I'm thinking, damn, I cranked out four. I went back and read through. I'm like, you're an idiot, John. I threw that shit all away. Uh, I mean, there's lots of good information. There was lots of good stories. I just, it didn't flow right to me. You know what? It, and I'll just say it was working in advertising. Um, I just, you know, write in short sentences. Uh, only say one thing. That came from just, you know, working in print ads. Um, hey, um, so here's another vocabulary word. Okay. The awakening. Oh, I love the awakening. Um, this all started, I was doing a show, you know, I used to host Wake Up USA. This is my first year doing Wake Up USA, by the way. And um, I was talking with a guest, a young lady who was a contactee. And I said, you know, um, it's a lot like coming out of the closet. You know, like being gay when you come out of the closet. It's like, you know, I heard many gays describe it as an awakening experience when they when they, they become free to the world and they're like, oh, look, here I am. And uh, they, then they're, they're like all their senses are fully functioning aware and they're living society as a gay person. Well, for contactees, it's the same damn thing. You're coming out of the closet. You're awakening to an experience that for your life or in your dream head, you always thought were dreams are fake. And now all of a sudden, this is real. And it, it, it becomes part of who and what you are. And it changes you in a sense that uh, – it changes in actually a lot of senses. Um, it allows you to think in a much more open fashion. Um, you see, start seeing the world in a different view. Um, sometimes that's a better view. Uh, I can't say it's always a better view, but a lot of times it's a, it's a better view. And it just, it's just an overall experience of, of becoming alive and not living half your life anymore. Because for contactees – or I should say for abductees who are repressing this, you're only living half your life. Okay, you are repressing a whole half of your life. Is it and, a half or is it just oh, it is might it a be tiny more. percentage? Oh, no, God, no, it might be more. It might be. To put this in perspective, and, and here's a case for you. Just, I'm just going to use this one case. And we got many of these, by the way, Mike. 
two friends of mine. These are friends, contactees that I've been knowing since I was 18 years old, and I'm 48. So um, they call me up when they live in Gulf Breeze, Florida, by the way. Uh, they call me up one night and say, Joe, why don't you come down? You and your wife come down. We'll have dinner and go out, and, and I want to show you some spots where we've seen some stuff. I said, sure, I'll come down. Uh, so we come down. We have dinner. Uh, we went out and had a few drinks. Uh, everybody was, you know, pretty and clean because, you know, we were all out in suits and stuff. And so we left about 2.30 in the morning and went home. Man, I get a call 6.30 in the morning from this hysterical woman just screaming and crying and screaming, what the is going on? She said, Joe, you got to come to my house. You've you got to come to my house. Uh, and I'm like, what? She said, I'm telling you, we got taken last night, and, and, and I've got the best evidence you've ever seen. I'm like, what the hell? So, you know, here I am. I'm like half asleep, half drunk still, you know. I'm jumping in the shower, putting some clothes on, stumbling around, get to my car. Uh, so I get over to her house. She's got hair on her legs an inch and a half long. The doctor said this had to be three to six months worth of growth in less than four hours. The guy, because I'm not going to mention his name on the air, he had a beard that looked like one of damn ZZ Top's beards. And I had just seen him that night. He was clean shaven, and she was wearing a dress. She had some sexy legs. So <laughs> I got to say, I, I, was, I was stunned. I mean, we got, and the best part is, Mike, we got pictures of the night because we were out taking pictures together that night, right? And we got pictures from the morning. This and, is fascinating. So now this, this, is, this is fascinating. And has this been written up as a, as a report? Has this, are you sitting on this information? It's it's in the it's in the database, and we have discussed it from time to time because uh, there's other cases like this. But the thing of it is, this suggests they were gone for two, three, maybe four months. Absolutely. And, or, and as far or as they're, concern, or there's something more mysterious going on. Who knows? And I you know like they got taken for three hours and, and put in the you know the magic machine that 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 accelerated something. Yeah. Well, we we see we thought about that too, but see we've got other cases though that with other things happening. <laughs> That suggests that's not what's going on. And then there's cases like this one. I love this case. You're going to love this one. This is a documented case, by the way. Um, two couples. One lives in New York. One lives in California. They come in at night. They take the wives, not the husbands, right? The next morning, they put the wives back. The problem is they put the wife in California in New York and the wife in New York in California. All right. So the woman in New so York. This is like 10 steps more intense than waking up with someone else's pajamas. Yeah. So all of a sudden, this woman wakes up, right? She's screaming. She starts beating on this guy next to her in New York. I mean, this dude had bruises all. She beat the shit out of him to be pulled. To, I mean, you can't really blame her because she's freaking at this point, right? So finally, he gets control of her and, and gets her holding. He says, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who the hell you are. Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, Will you come, come to me at my house? And he said, We're in New York. And then she really freaked. So finally, he gets her to give her the phone number. So, well, he's calling. You know, because it's like six o'clock in the morning in New York, which means it's like what four, three or four, and uh, yep. at least four, and, uh, and no, actually it was five, so it must have been seven in New York. But anyway, so they're calling. So the guy reaches over and answers the phone. She's screaming at him, right? And he's like, "Baby, you're laying right next to me. What are you talking to?" And he looks over, and then he realizes that's not his wife, and she wakes up and she freaks. Well, look. They've got airplane tickets to document this. They proved they were both at work that day. They've even got video of them of uh, the the girl in New York leaving her uh, job like at ten o'clock at night, uh, and the girl in California was with friends until like uh, one in the morning or something. So, and there's a time difference there. So it was like it would barely they barely overlaid it. It was kind of weird. They must have pulled them out of time or something. But um, still, it's a well documented case and it's good evidence. And I was like, I was just like stunned. Um, no, this is that's absolutely that's the stuff of. I mean, if it was written yeah. in a in a science fiction movie, it would be ridiculous. Yeah. 
Well, you know, the very first case I'd ever heard about that was a case uh, out of California and Japan. The girl went to bed that morning. Uh, the girl in Japan was wearing a teddy when she went to bed. And the girl in um, California was wearing a T-shirt and drawers. And on her drawers, she had her name and phone number from, like, when she was in summer camp when she was young. I guess she's a little bit older, but I guess the drawers were – anyway – that morning, she wakes up in this pink teddy that's, like, way too small for her, right? She's, like, busting out of the thing, like, he woman or something. And she's got a picture of it. It's just so funny to see. You can't put it on the Internet because it's, it's not exactly G-rated. But, well, I guess you could. But still, it's not exactly a G-rated photo. And, uh, but the girl in Japan calls her because she's now wearing her drawers. And I was like, you know, it's the very first case of this. And she's got the pair of drawers in Japan. You know, so we're all kind of like, you know, now – is this a mistake or is this something E.T.'s doing to F with you? I don't know, Mike. I really don't. I, I would like to think it's a mistake, but E.T. doesn't really seem to make as many mistakes as we would like to think they do. So I'm not exactly sure. Sometimes I'm thinking they're doing this just to, to let us know. It might be for the researchers. You know, Maybe it's like throwing a bone. You know, We're going to throw you a bone. Because I have a hard time believing they put the wives in the wrong places on accident. <laughs> but I guess I could. And you know what? These two women didn't even look that much alike. Uh, one was kind of blondish red hair with about five foot tall. The other girl was dark black hair, was about five eleven. So I'm not exactly sure how to even mess that one up. Uh, I don't know. It's it one of them cases. But we got other cases where lots of hair growth or you know fingernail growth, or and this is more important than all what we're talking about. Like the couple I was talking about, under regression, they've got like three months worth of memories intense memories of being trained in places off world in uh, uh, training environments like the ones Jim Sparks talks about stuff like that I mean they're, and this is long before Jim Sparks by the way uh, well long before he came public I shouldn't say mm -hmm. before because I know when his case started but uh, still you know I'm like damn now yeah. now if there I mean you know, here's one thing that I, I meditate over and sort of like can't quite get beyond Don't it. Yeah. and, and um, you know there's there's obviously screen memories right so there's obviously the ability to you know mess with our memories somehow they can project a memory into our our psyche somehow in in on some sense you know why can't the entire experience that gets that gets remembered be a projected memory uh, you know, I mean, do they actually have to come visit the the home and hover above the house in, in, in a flying saucer and take someone, or can they just, um, you know, from a long distance affect people through? Oh, you know, I almost want to say um, telepathic ways where they would just download an entire memory that the that the abductee would think was real and that would have the same impact as being uh, uh, real. Well, we have a thing they call non-physical abductions is what you're talking about. See, there's abductions, and then there's being taken out of time and space, but then there's non-physical abductions, and then there's downloads. A non-physical abduction, as far as you're concerned, is just as real as anything you've ever experienced. The only difference is your body never leaves your house or your car or wherever the hell you may be at the time. You might be sitting in your office slumped over half asleep in front of your computer, but regardless, it doesn't leave. It's like they take your consciousness, and they, it's almost – because they have several areas. I, I guess the greatest comparison would be like on the new Star Trek Generations, uh, the hologram, sure. the holodeck. Yeah, exactly. And, um, but they take your consciousness there. So you really do think it's real. The only reason we knew it wasn't is because some people would see their body. People were thinking they were having out-of-body experiences, but that's not actually what they were having. 
they were actually being taken to these places. And I think some of the new ages get confused with that. Uh, they think they're having an out of body going into cosmic consciousness, and we know that's not what's going on. But uh, you know, it's hard to make them understand that. But anyway, they do have the ability to do that. We call it non-physical abductions. And it was something we stumbled across by accident. And based on some other research, we ran across it. And, and it was sets of experiences people were having that, like, in some cases, they would be interacting with the gray and, and somebody would get mad or somebody would rush them, but then they would, like, go right through them. Um, so they weren't actually in a physical form. And, but you can feel pain and you can experience emotions. And you can't experience, like, heat and weather and stuff like that. Why did they say, I mean, everybody says all your senses work. And is this, like, people who, I mean, there's stories where people will, uh, like, people will wear glasses. And they have very bad eyesight. And then they'll be abducted. Yeah, and then and in the experience, they won't have their glasses on, but they'll be they seeing very clearly. Glasses. Yeah, they won't have any glasses on, but they'll, they'll see just fine. And what is uh, that? That's, that's because the computer adjusts for it. The whatever the, the interface is between your your mind and the computer on the ship or in the location um, in a non-physical way ship. is that what you're saying or well no they just adjust I mean because all it's doing is taking your consciousness it's uploading your consciousness into the computer so for that moment you're actually part of the computer you you're generated you're being generated into the same environment as the gray and everybody else's so yeah the, the computer just adjusts that's like people with limps don't limp they walk normal. Uh, you know, gimped stuff like that. It's the computer just makes it back to normal. It's just because it's how it determines what it should be. And when you say computer, is this just a term you're using, or do you know there's a computer? Yeah, because I, I don't know. If it's, uh, no, no, I'm not going to say I know it's a computer. Because first off, I don't think they're what well, we consider computers anything with like what they have. So uh, computer is probably a really bad term. I mean, to me, like you know, I just my thought is is, is it's less a computer and more and more a um, yes. as like a psychic skill on the part of of the of the the abductees excuse well, me the abductors well, yeah well both abductees and abductors but we do know because of the green room or the star room that the grays have hologram generated rooms so that has to be some type of computer uh or like the, the holodeck just, in, in, okay. in star trek well let's let's do this a little different because we are talking about the grays the grays are their their technology is alive their ships are, from what we understand from what the grays say their ships are grown uh and they're heard not that before yeah, you know, and Gray's interface, most contactees will tell you there's no physical technologies aboard these ships like we understand technologies. The, the Gray's interface, like they can slip into them when they're driving. It takes three other drives to small craft. I don't know how many it takes to drive the big ones, but uh, they just slip into different pockets on the ship. They, they merge with the damn ship. When the contactees are talking about equipment, it comes out of the flush wall and turns into stuff as it's getting closer to them. Uh, this is a much different kind of technology than what we're used to or even what the reptilians and humans have. Their technology seems to be more physical-based, as the grays seem to be leaps beyond that, uh, bounds and leaps beyond that. Their technology seems like all their walls, their, 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 the ships are self-illuminous. There's no fixtures or lamps anywhere, which, by the way, is also abduction criteria. Uh, the floors and the walls, everything glows, and it, it glows certain things and, and change the lighting and environment. And their light produces energies that affect human bodies, uh, depending on what type of light it is. So their, their understanding of the cosmos is so far beyond us, it's not even funny. And really, their ship is. So it might be that you become part of the ship's consciousness. 
Now, now here's a question. So researchers like, like Jacques Vallée will point out that in the 1950s and the 1940s, you know, people who claimed the contact experience, it often, it often showed up in this, you know, uh, flying saucer lands in the farmer's front yard. Yeah. You know, they say, hey, come on in. And, and they walk into the, to the, to the flying saucer and they, are, they see, you know, uh, vacuum tubes and they see things that would be, um, you know, what amounts to... Uh, modern technologies, technologies that they can wrap their minds around, you know, like yeah. a little bit more advanced than, than what a farmer would perceive in the 1950s. Are you just describing some sort of, uh, and I'm just, this is, this is something I'm really curious about. Are you just describing some sort of theater that they're presenting to us? And, and that's uh, just a little bit farther down the road of our own technological advancements. I mean, we are very close to having virtual reality in our own sphere. You know, like people are researching that right now. We're very close to having, um, you know, fully integrated homes and things like that where, you know, it would be less uh, switching a button and more direct contact yeah. to, to your light switch. You know, like, uh, you well, know, like... New you know homes today, you can yeah. Well, new homes today, you can make fully sensitive to your mood and your heat of your body. It can actually adjust temperature zones by adjusting your body heat. It's really weird stuff. So, uh, so anyway, what, what do you, you know what I'm saying? Like, is, yeah, but this, no, is, but, this is my but, question: is is it is it the greatest? Well, in in a way, but but for the greatest, see their technology. Like I said, their, their technology is a is a is a is a live technology. It's a biotechnology. We're not anywhere near biotechnologies yet. We're still using, you know, solid state chips and things like these. Grays are far beyond using a physical type technology. So for them, I think it's, it's, it's a different world. It's like they're connected with their ship. They're part of what goes on with their ship. There's an interaction on a conscious level between them. And I think anytime they drag us into it, we become part of that interaction. Um, when they draw in a non-physical abduction, we become part of the interaction. It's like they drag us in to the consciousness that they're sharing with that ship or even what they're sharing with other grays. No, no. Here, let me let me interject. You know, so, so what you're describing in a way is is less a form of our present technology. What I will say, what you're describing is a, is a form of our present science fiction. You know, what you're describing shows up in modern movies and things like that. There was a movie yeah. called uh, The Knowing that Nicolas Cage was in, and at the end, the the UFO is revealed, and it, it's not a flying saucer. It's like an organic, living, undulating mass of energy. Well, yeah, it's it's it's, and the thing about that is, is there's descriptions that um, the Sumerians and the Egyptians and the Dogon give of these alive craft. They they called them alive. We're talking six thousand years ago. So to me, this is this is more significant than half the stuff that's being said today. It, our ancestors already knew. It, it seems like Mike, if you go back and you really sift through the Sumerian text, and you don't do like Ike and then just pick parts and make some bullshit out of it. If you actually go through it and read what the text is saying, and then you go listen to what the Dogon are saying about the Nerebru and them, and you go look at the Egyptian stuff on this, and you find the hieroglyphs, because there's a couple of hieroglyphs in Egypt where there's a gray reptilian and a human alien present. Of course, the humans don't look like us. They have much longer heads than ours, uh, and they're quite a bit bigger than we are, and they have six fingers and six toes. But anyway, um, you'll see these things. So it, the ancient world was much more adept in knowing that the aliens were here than we were. For some reason, the aliens moved more openly amongst them. They were more involved in what was going on back then. It doesn't seem until the age of modern religion that that changed. Like given a time, like like what are you saying? Is that like the time of Christ? Okay. Uh, when when the modern Christianity was two to three thousand years ago, probably about twenty twenty, we'll, we'll say two twenty four hundred years somewhere around there, it seemed to have changed. And there's a couple of things that seem to change. Think about this: the reptilians were revered in every culture on the planet 
until modern religion came. They were the bringers of life, the starters of life. They were the sun gods. They were the water gods. The evil gods were always the humans. But when modern religion took over that flip-flop, the reptilians became evil and the humans became good. And then that shows up even in China now where the vestiges of their old mythology, the, the dragon is considered like a good omen. Yeah. Well, if you go by what was said about the Sumerian, what the Sumerians say about the reptilians and what the Dogons say about them, they're the ones that brought sentient to the planet. They're the ones that gave us self, self-awareness. They became, we became self-aware because of their direct intervention. Even the Christian Bible says that. With, with, Eve, the, with the snake, with the, the serpent. serpent. Yeah, she, you know. The serpent gave Eve the apple. Eve bit the apple. What was the first thing Eve did? She clothed herself. And why did she clothe herself? Because she realized she was naked to the world. She was now self-aware. And that's what they said the reptilians did for the humans. And so this doesn't sound like a species that hates us or wants to eat us. Uh, and the Dogon swear, especially in the Mesoamericans, swear that they were agrarian society. They were amphibians in an agrarian society. Uh, so, you know, this is modern myth that painted them as the bad guy when, in fact, these are probably the guys that gave us self-awareness. Um, and it's, I think it's also one of the reasons why so many people are interested in us or so many aliens are interested. Think about this. If we're truly part of the human alien race, part of the reptilian race, and then the greys also intervene, that means three of the more powerful races in the universe we now share a common DNA and, and ancestry with. Which means somewhere in the future, billion years, 100 million years, this race will surpass those. So maybe there's a reason why they want to keep an eye on yeah, us. Yeah, now this is, this is I'm going to just jump in but, here. But this, this is, is all speculation now, let's be absolutely. honest. Absolutely, okay, so, so, so yeah. good, good. That's, I'm glad you yeah. said that. Because this is, um, like, I'm, I, like I, you know, you're, you're super entertaining to listen to. I have my own set of experiences <laughs> that I can tap into. Um, I trust that you've done uh, a lot of research and gathered oh, a lot of data. But every once in a while, you know, you, like I hear you go off and, and I'm like, like I just kind of want to like, you know, like, whoa, 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 back up, back up. Like, let's play rewind. That's I want to check each little fine. point. And uh, so this is, this is, um, uh, you know, this is this is tough stuff for me to just believe or to. I mean, it's it's nice to speculate it, on, yeah, and and it can be that. interpreted any number of ways. And we're talking about elusive stuff. You know, we're talking about documentation yeah. that's you know many thousands of years old. Oh yeah. And um, but at the same time, I will say that I do go down these safe avenues of speculations. I I just don't do it with the same, uh, well, you know, forthrightness for that you do. Diff- well, because there's a reason why though. When you've done this for 30 years, that's going to change. But it's more than that. Like November Hansen. November Hansen is one of the best ancient researchers you're going to ever find. Not just her. So is DeAndrew. And they're very tough on me. They're not going to just let me go off on a rampage without checking what the hell is being said. So what happened is in the early days of ICAR, we'll tell you this. And every researcher that works for me will tell you this. When you ask us where you should start to understand this research, the first thing that's going to come out of anybody in this field in our organization's mouth is ancient history. Start with the Sumerians and work your way forward. Because there is so much to be found in these areas, even in the old world, in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, that 500 years there, there is a wealth of data there. There is documentation in London of UFOs for 700 years. So the thing about it is, is the Vatican alone has got like 1,500 years worth. The, so the, the thing here is for us is to make people understand, like... Um, Anything prior to 1850 flying around in the sky, you have to take, like, what the hell? Sure, and, and then and Jacques Vallée just put out that really cool book called uh, Wonders in the Sky with his co-author. And yeah. um, I can't remember the co-author's name. Chris something. You know, that's a, that's a powerhouse book because— Well, you, think you, of it like this. This shows you—this will differentiate us from everybody else. 
Originally, everybody said that the Naskins were making their kids look like the Grays because, you know, the gray, the, they used to board their children, uh, put boards on their head to dish shape in their head to look like their gods. And because of the way they were doing it, everybody thought they were doing it like the Grays. Well, the Grays' heads are round. They're big, but they're kind of— Big they're and big and light bulb shape, sure. And round, yeah. But the human heads are not. The human heads look more like— um, uh, what, what, what is that? Alien. Remember the movie Alien? You know, sure, how the heads yep. are long like that? Like the pharaohs of Egypt? That's the kind of heads that the humans have. That's the kind of heads that the Naskins were trying to make. So we understand who the Naskins were worshipping now, just like we understand who the Egyptians were worshipping. Now, who are the Naskins? The Naskins, the Naskin lines. Remember all the lines in South oh, America? Oh, yeah. Those, those, the yeah. ones that you can only see from space? Sure. Yeah, those people used to board their children's heads to make them look more like their gods. So now we know who was visiting the Naskins, was the damn human aliens. Uh, just like we know from most of Mesoamerica, the reptilians were involved because of their worship rites and stuff. And when you say that the human aliens, you're talking, you, the, the description you give is um, less of the angelic Nordics that are blonde and, and tall and superhero looking. Um, mm -hmm. And in the description you give is something a little more, uh, you say six fingers? Yeah, they have, they have six fingers and six toes. Every contact he's ever seen him says that they got six fingers and six toes. I don't know how they're seeing their feet, and I don't even want to know, to be honest with you. Well, I mean, uh, my assumption is they're wearing, like, you know, magical togas, and they've got sandals uh, on or something. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe well, I don't know. But they, uh, usually they say they're in some type of uniform, uh, white or blue. or you most. There's, like, three colors that most people talk about with these little insignias and stuff on. Sounds a lot of Star trek -y it stuff. It sounds tight, right out of some Star Exactly. Um, it sounds like an old but, Star Trek. But uh, it does sound a lot like that, but... When they describe their face, their faces are, are, are round or more round than ours, and they look different than ours, and their eye colors are much different than ours. They don't have blue and green and, and brown eyes. They, their eyes are distinctively different colors than ours. So if they were in the regular population without wearing contacts, you would notice it right at the back. But their heads are about the same size as ours in the front, but they probably extend out another foot longer in the back. Um, so they're distinctively different. There's no way you're going to mistake these guys for one of us. Uh, so the only thing we could think of in the in the early times, because the Sumerians describe them looking like this, the Egyptians describe them looking like this. It's not until the 1950s or 1940s that we start getting these angelic-like aliens. And actually, Hitler was the one who put that in his book. Um, you now, know, he, what are you what are you saying? Are you saying that the angelic ones are somehow a uh, screen screen projection? Oh yes, definitely. It's a projection. It's definitely. It's 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 what makes you feel the most comfortable. Think about this. Hitler designed his, his people, he, fair-haired, blonde-eyed, blue-eyed, six-foot angels are, were visiting him. That's what he says, okay? That's what he says. And he tried to create his whole race after this. Not only that, he was doing every genetic experiment there is. Well, we know these aliens are doing this. A lot of what he was doing, these aliens were doing. It looks like almost deliberately these human aliens got involved with him and was driving him in a particular direction. And yes, who would he easily work for? The angel-looking people or these weird-looking aliens with these weird color eyes saying, okay. you better go do this. You know, it just makes sense to me if that's how it's going to be done. We also know from other contact cases that all three of the major races have the ability to make you see whatever it is they want. Yep. It's, it's more likely to me that you are being imaged in your head than the alien is actually shape-shifting. Because let's be honest, first of all, the energy it's going to take to shape-shift, 
you're going to have to be an energy being like a light being. I don't think a normal corporeal being could ever do it. So you're saying uh, that like if you took a still photograph of, of like, you know, someone says, here I was in the room with this with this angelic being, and then you take a still photograph, and then the, 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 the being then looks like the, the human that you're talking about with the, with the elongated head and the six fingers. That's more than likely what they would look like unless they have the ability to project that image on the camera. Which, which who knows, but they, they certainly yeah, might. I, I would, yeah, I wouldn't rule it out, but still, it's just, you know, everybody pre- um, what's his name? Billy Myers did not describe these angels. It only, you know, with the exception of Hitler, nobody else described them like that. Um, it wasn't until later on that you really started hearing alien descriptions. Like, I mean, you've always heard angelic descriptions all throughout our history, which may have been these guys too directly intervening. Because um, think about this: the Christians are the ones that have the angels. They're the ones that turned everybody against the reptilians. Remember, they they crucified or pretty much, you know, sent Satan to hell for giving Eve the apple. So they, they really changed the way the world looked at reptiles. They really did. So if these were the human aliens directly intervening on, on, on their behalf by like looking like angels and stuff, it would have made it a lot easier to get these world leaders and popes to do what they wanted them to do. Um, it would, you know, because this is an angelic being as far as they're concerned, even though as far as we're concerned in modern, they're not that. They're aliens. But for them, I would, I would imagine that probably 80 or 85% of what is considered religion on this planet today is probably directly related to the extraterrestrials. And uh, I've heard that too. Uh, and, I mean, whatever, uh, you know, and some people would round that right up to 100. And, and, um, well, know. my problem is let's look at Jesus. We know Jesus lived. Okay, we have five different accounts of him, five different, world, five different countries. So we know he existed. Now, only the Christians say he was the son of God. Everybody else said he was either a minor prophet or, or, or a leader. But nobody goes any further than that. Um, now, a lot of what he says that he's did, extraterrestrials do, like walking in water. Yeah, they can do that. They can cure you by waving their hand over you. They can definitely do that. Uh, they can definitely hover. And if they wanted to run fish out of the water, they could definitely do that. So nothing that's described in the, in the miracles of Bibles, the aliens can't reproduce today. So was he the son of God? Was he a man? Was he an alien? We don't know. We just know he existed. And there's uh, also this uh, virginal mother was visited by a beam of desert. light and everything like yeah. that. So there's all kinds well, of see, that, that and, and see, that's the thing. Mary's classic alien abduction. She went missing. A, a beam of light grabbed her and she went missing for days. I mean, you can't get any more classic alien abduction than that. I mean, that's like right out of E.T. or something. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you got to stop and go back and look. And, and, and really, that comes down to faith is what that comes down to, what you personally believe. And then, and then what was, how literal the documentation is in the, the, yes. the Bibles is also, for yes. obvious reasons, is coming to question. But Well, yeah, because it was written, you know, what, a hundred years after everything had happened, and then it was written by selective people that maybe shouldn't have been writing in the first place. So, well, we always said that. The, written, the Bible was written by men for the control of men, and it's exactly what it does today. Um, problem is, is, you know, you got all these other religions out there doing the same thing. Hi, this is Mike chiming in during the editing process. Uh, I just snipped out some stuff. Joe and I were talking about uh, getting ready to take a break, and then somehow that turned into talking about the website. He shares some stuff about his very busy uh, website that does all the audio posting, and I, and I just thought some of that was interesting just to give you an idea of you know, where he's coming from. Uh, this audio interview, for obvious reasons, because it's so long, is broken up into two parts, and we're getting close to the end of part one. Back to the interview. Right now we're doing um, we're doing about ten to fifteen thousand plays a week on the archive site, and probably between seven hundred fifty thousand and one point two million downloads a week on the site. 
Uh, it's a busy, busy, busy site. And GoDaddy felt so sorry for me that they made a whole new category on their thing so that I could get bandwidth cheaper um, because we were blowing through it and they didn't want to lose me as a customer because I told them, I said, look, if, if, if y'all going to keep blowing my site down 10 days out of a month, I got to move because I, you know, I can't do that. I mean, it's, that's, Lord, you know how hard it is to get ranked and we're ranked. If you type in UFO radio or paranormal radio, we're ranked first, first, second, or third. And a lot of times we're ranked first, second, and third. And, you know, they just appraised the paranormal domain the other day at $118,000. I, I don't want to lose those kind of rankings, man. Uh, so I can't be having it go down like that. But go on, go, go great, do that. Great, I'm going to shut up. you down and call you back in five minutes. All right, works, works. Great, bye. Whew, and I thought I talked fast. Hey, um, uh, as nutty as some of that stuff sounded, I felt like I was following it pretty closely. I felt like I chimed in when I needed to. And uh, there's lots more. This is only about halfway. Uh, get ready, because part two is, is uh, just as big a whirlwind. So this is the formal end of part one. And uh, switch on over to part two and uh, get ready. Uh, we don't slow down. Thanks. <laughs>